We have some very science adjacent news for you. What is it? It's extremely adjacent. What is it? Um, which is that you know the bad sex in literature awards? Yeah. They do. They got canceled this year because Aww. of coronavirus. Oh no. Because they were like the public seen enough bad things this year. <gasps> what? That's one of the few good things on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I want it back. I'm sorry. It's just for this year. Okay. Well, okay. That does feel like a blow, though. It feels like a further blow to 2020. Yeah, it's true. I want to clarify that the the science in there is coronavirus. Yeah, I, I figured. <laughs> um, okay, well, and I guess bad analogy. You take all those sentences and then your language of them is bad. But I think that's a judge, like a, yeah, like a writing. It's a qualitative judgment. analysis. I, okay, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's exactly data science, though. I'd say it was more of a survey science, <laughs> which I guess could be considered data science. Yeah. Oh, well, sad. Well, good thing 2020 is almost over. And guess what's, what else is almost over? Oh, no. Over? This is really upsetting to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, hello, listener. Yeah. We're announcing the end of Grayson and Allison's run on Buffs Talk Science. Um, this week, I moved to New York, and um, we are handing the podcast over to a dedicated science buff. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite thing about Galen is that what time <laughs> He and Julie and I went to the movies, and we stopped by his apartment first, and there were all these shoes by the door, and I, like, started to take my shoe off, like, my shoes off, and he was like, no, 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 you don't want to be barefoot. <laughs> that is true. Is you do not want to be barefoot in that also scary. <laughs> so, that's it. So the Galen from that anecdote <laughs> will be taking over the podcast eventually, but we're leaving it up to him to find his own format in uh, preferences. So the next time you hear an episode of Buffs Talk Science, it will be very different and it won't include us. And I just wanted to say thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. Sorry this is abrupt. <laughs> um, Allison and I obviously really, really have had a nice time podcasting. It has been the best part of graduate school for me, honestly. <laughs> it's been definitely one of the best parts for me, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Just kidding. Just kidding. I feel like that is rude. It is only one of the best parts for me. I've also really enjoyed game. <laughs> yes, that's true. I also say it about game. Oh, no. Okay. And also, I really like camping with Kelsey. So, yes. It's one of the best parts of graduate school, though, for sure. Yes. I think the part that has made me most excited about science? having a career. Oh. <laughs> oh, yes. And science. Yeah. For me, like what podcasting has done is it's made me so excited about all the different kinds of science that are out mm -hmm. there and all the different things that we don't know and yeah. that people are still discovering. <laughs> I've been writing a, I have to write a personal statement to apply for that UCSC program. And it is about that, mm -hmm. about just like science, like to be an academic researcher, you're asked to specialize and like continue specializing basically forever. And it makes me feel grim and disgusted <laughs> <laughs> or like, it's just, I don't know. It, it helps me to be able to step outside of that and Remember that there's so much else yeah. out there. It's like getting to borrow somebody else's enthusiasm, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. and like ways of thinking in a way that's very helpful mm -hmm. for, I don't know, being happy and also for doing science well. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Anyway, the point <laughs> is we would really like to continue podcasting, but we cannot continue doing so under the letterhead uh, like <laughs> as as buffs because yeah. Allison is soon to be like t tomorrow, the day this drops. <laughs> yeah. 
Is no, no, no. Actually, I, my start date is. Um, well, but it doesn't oh, matter when you start. But it yes, it's when you end. Tomorrow <laughs> is the last day of being a buff, and I will become <laughs> a Yankee. <laughs> is that true? No. A bobcat. <laughs> As of December fourteenth, I become a bobcat. So I'm gonna have to. <laughs> so we're starting a new podcast called Bob's Talk Science. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding just kidding i'm not a bob um, <laughs> um so we're going to continue podcasting but we're going to be starting a new podcast um together called science adjacent and we're really excited about it yeah <laughs> so science adjacent is a term you've probably heard us use a lot over the past uh, three years <laughs> and we have used this term to to mean you know topics that are associated with the science story that we're discussing or a story that is primarily about things that are not quite the science, but like related to the science. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to turn that into a podcast. And the format will be one of us will tell a science adjacent story. So a story that has science at the core, but we also talk about, you know, other topics associated with that science. And then the other person will just gasp a lot. Yeah. The other person will be reactive. (laughs) What? (laughs) So we're picturing like a reply all, but for science (laughs) is our tagline. (laughs) Yeah. We have not contacted Reply All Task if this is okay. <laughs> um, so we would love for you to follow along. We have a iTunes launch page. Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcast <laughs> launch page under Science Adjacent where you will find a trailer for our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if it's just a recording of a trailer like squeaking down the road? <laughs> that would hook me. <laughs> Yeah. Um, um, so go ahead and follow us, and we won't have a new episode up immediately because there's a lot of moving that has to happen and between also then holidays. and now. And also holidays, but we'll be we'll be podcasting them from there eventually. And in the meantime, we'll also be setting up a Twitter page and a website. So nice. good things in the future for Grayson and Allison specifically. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> nice. Well. In terms of buff stock science, let's start our last yeah, episode. Let's hurry while you're still a buff. <laughs> um, what are you going to? Also, I'm Grace. We've mentioned our names a lot, but I wanted to clarify which one I was. <laughs> I'm Allison. Yeah. Uh, what are you talking about this week, Allison? I'm talking about a fallen telescope and its legacy. And I'm also going to be talking about a strange pollinator that was found on a work holiday. Ooh. <laughs> Like a holiday where you work. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about the mystery surrounding some fish deaths in Washington mm-hmm. and about crabs. <laughs> Wait, are you talking about crayfish? No. <laughs> I'm talking about crabs. Actual crabs. Yes. Nice. Well, I did say more crabs in the notes, <laughs> but these are actual crabs. Nice. So, would you like to go first? Sure. Because I feel like the crab story sucks. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> okay, just in case. No, no, no. Okay. So, I'm going to talk about the Arecibo Telescope, which is a telescope that is part of the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Um, and unfortunately, I'm going to start on a sad note which is that on December 1st, the detection equipment above this telescope collapsed and in the process damaged the dish um, Mm -hmm. as well as the equipment irreparably. Yeah. 
I want to, for full disclosure, I've read a lot about this. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Before it was, no, 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 no. I mean, not a lot. Not a lot. But I've been following it. Okay. Like, I don't know. Like following just people being people sad about being it. Sad. Yeah. Yeah. And for a lot, because like one of the cables snapped and damaged the dish a long time or like a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. And people kept posting pictures of the other cables and being like, this is going to happen soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, I'm going to wrap a little bit of that into the history of how this telescope was built and things like that. Um, But yeah, this is definitely a topic that has made a lot of um, people, especially like space (laughs) adjacent people, (laughs) um, very sad because it is the end of an era. Um, So I uh, read about this story via NPR, um, mostly an article by Bill Chappelle. And also I... um, the NPR shortwave podcast did like a legacy episode about um, this telescope. They actually did it in November as it was being decommissioned. So Mm -hmm. um, that's where I'm getting a lot of my information. But so this telescope was built between 1960 and 1963. It actually was part of the, a DARPA project. Um, So DARPA had just been formed and (laughs) formed as ARPA. And they wanted to develop anti-ballistic missile defenses. Um, And this telescope was created because William E. Gordon at Cornell realized he could benefit from the money that was being basically handed out via DARPA um, to make anti-ballistic missile defenses, but at the same time create a general purpose research telescope. So he used DARPA funds to start um, overseeing the creation of this telescope. And the way the place that he decided to build this telescope is in Puerto Rico, obviously. Um, But he decided to take advantage of these natural sinkholes that exist in the karst region of Puerto Rico. There was a natural sinkhole that was exactly the right size and almost completely spherical. So he decided you could just plop down a dish in the middle of that sinkhole and it would be the perfect place for a telescope. Do you not have to worry about them sinking any further? No. They've done their sinking. All that's left is a pit. (laughs) Wow. Okay, cool. (laughs) So um, it was originally supposed to be a fixed dish. All the equipment was supposed to be fixed in place. But the downside of that is that then you can't see anything in the sky except that's in the direction that the telescope is currently pointing. Mm -hmm. So so as he was discussing these plans with other people, um, he got some feedback that eventually led to the creation of suspended equipment um, on cables. And this equipment that's suspended above the main dish um, means that the kind of cre- the capture zone mm-hmm. can move depending on where you move the suspended equipment. So it wasn't just limited to where you were pointing the dish um, or where the dish was pointing, it could be expanded to anywhere you could move the equipment to face. Nice. Um, so this telescope was 305 meters across, which made it the largest single dish telescope for 53 years wow. until it was eventually surpassed by a microscope in China. Wait, a, a telescope? Right? A telescope. <laughs> <laughs> Famously small. <laughs> I'm going to mess that up a lot, I think, because I never say telescope. I only ever say microscope oh as a molecular biologist. <laughs> so, But as long as you catch me every time, okay. we should be fine. <laughs> um, so it was NSF-funded. And NASA funded for a while 
NASA stopped its funding in 2006, but then eventually picked it back up. Um, it, there was a recommended funding decrease from the Astronomical Sciences Division, which said that it probably wasn't worth funding anymore. They said this in 2011, and it immediately led to the creation of ASAP, the Arecibo Science Advo Advocating Partner. <laughs> Sorry. I can't read my own handwriting. No worries. I can never read my own handwriting. I typed these ones out. I'm excited. Nice. <laughs> Smart. Um, so ASAP was formed because of this recommended funding decrease, which would have been devastating to the running of the telescope. Um, and it had mixed results. The NSF decreased their funding, but NASA stepped back up to the plate in 2010. Um and so although NSF at that point was already starting to toss around the ideas of de decommissioning the telescope, there was enough funding to keep it running um, from the NSF, from NASA, and from other various um, institutions. Nice. But that brings us to 2020. The NSF had been talking about decommissioning it for a while. And then in 2020, um, the support cable started to break. So the support cables are what hold up the equipment above the dish. Um, and as by the time three of them had bro broken, it was becoming clear that if left untended, then all of the support cables holding up the equipment would break and the equipment would fall onto the dish and damage it um, and possibly be incredibly dangerous to people who were on or around the telescope as well. So in no on November 2019 of this year, the NSF announced that they were decommissioning um, Arecibo Telescope. And immediately afterwards, plans were put in place to move equipment out of the observatory area um, so that they could demolish it safely mm -hmm. without damaging any equipment that could be salvaged, um, which is why on December 1st, there were scientists in the observatory <laughs> moving equipment out um, and they were the first to hear the sounds of the telescope collapsing. So um, on December 1st, um, um, two more cables snapped and this caused the, um, the equipment to um, fall onto the dish. It also ripped down the supporting towers. Mm -hmm. So not only did the equipment fall onto the dish, but it actually scraped across the dish mm -hmm. sideways. So it didn't just damage the center of the dish. It also like carved a mm -hmm. gash in the dish and there's some really devastating photos of that happening and actually like i'm sure you saw a video of yeah. when the cable snap so was um, anybody hurt nobody was hurt um there were people who heard it i'm not even sure anybody witnessed it live um there was like that drone video but the the people who are interviewed about the cable snapping and the telescope being destroyed were in a different part of the observatory and actually couldn't see anything happening mm -hmm. because what you can see of the dish from the observatory tower, it looks totally unscathed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's only if you're in the right angle on the dish that, or like looking at it from above that mm -hmm. you can see that there's a giant gash in it. I know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so even as early as November 19th, but definitely now um, people are kind of, starting to reflect on the legacy mm -hmm. of this telescope and what it's um, done for science. And it's actually so sad to read about this because there's so many cool things that mm -hmm. this telescope had discovered um, before it was, you know, announced that it would be decommissioned. So 
Um, the Arecibo telescope provided the first evidence that neutron stars exist. Ooh. Neutron stars are collapsed car cores of stars composed almost entirely of neutrons. And there wasn't any evidence that they existed, like any hard evidence that they existed until um, the Arecibo uh, uh, telescope captured some. The Arecibo telescope discovered the first binary pulsar okay which <laughs> i had to look up what this was it's, and then go down like a wikipedia rabbit hole but this is the two stars that yes, circle each other it's so cool yeah, yeah. <laughs> two uh, and two neutron stars i think almost, almost okay always what okay so those stars do not have any like if it's just neutrons neutrons sorry that's not like any elements right it's i just don't think like, so yeah just go. like sub a atomic particles smushed together it's disturbing to me <laughs> oof yeah weird i guess as a chemist and not a physicist i say hmm, i wish that was a chemical <laughs> and not just I wish it wasn't just particles yeah. <laughs> this sorry so this telescope discovered the first binary pulsar which is important not just because it's like the first time that it was discovered but also because it's um, a good way to somehow study the theory of relativity because they create such a huge gravitational mm -hmm. well um that it's a that physicists um use them to study the theory of relativity. Nice. <laughs> Great work, physicists. Good job. Uh, it was it was responsible for the first radar observation of a comet and the first direct image of an asteroid. It mapped the distribution of ice on Mercury. Pretty cool. I didn't even remember that there was ice on Mercury. Well, wow. <laughs> I is... wake up every morning and I say, remember. <laughs> I like tie a string around my finger. <laughs> this is how little I remember anything about space. I didn't know Mercury had ice on it. No. Okay. <laughs> I feel better. <laughs> Arecibo detected prebiotic molecules in a galaxy called ARP 2020. Oh my gosh. Wait, ARP 220. Sorry. Okay, okay. <laughs> And it's the source of the data for SETI at Home, <gasps> which I did not know. I didn't know that either. That's so cool. Oh, my gosh. Well, we love <gasps> SETI at Home. <laughs> so the problem is SETI at Home has been on hiatus for, like, a while. I can't mm. be certain how long because I run it on my, like, on, it's not my computer at work. <laughs> I run it on a computer at work. <laughs> and I think maybe, like, two months ago I noticed that it was... Like, they aren't distributing more jobs. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if that's because of Arecibo. Maybe. Yeah. I, w I thought it was COVID-related, but it might, yeah, might it, be Arecibo. Yeah, it might also be COVID-related, but oh, it was very sad. Yeah. So this is, yeah, just like Arecibo, study at home. Two things we love. <laughs> yeah. Is there any, are there any telescopes that are, like, poised to step up? Like, so probably the telescope in China that is now the largest single-dish telescope that okay. will probably take the place of Arecibo in some ways although I don't know you know if it will take over all its roles mm -hmm. um yeah I guess we'll have to see um and that's actually it there isn't actually I don't have much of a story I'm sorry there isn't a whole lot of air narrative arc here I just thought it was worth mourning yeah <laughs> it didn't I don't pay attention to space news as much as I maybe should but but people are like genuinely very sad about this telescope and I hadn't realized how many cool things it had done in its mm -hmm. lifetime since 1960 it's a very charismatic telescope also mm -hmm. it's beautiful it's so cool that it's innocent cool yeah <laughs> so well, Thanks, Arecibo Telescope. Yes, thank you. 
I have another story that's kind of sad, I guess. Uh-oh. I don't know. A sad episode. I think of a, well, this one is good. This one is intriguing. There's okay. intrigue. I love intrigue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this story I learned about um, because it came out of the University of Washington. Um, so Sarah McQuaid oh. tweeted about it. Cool. Yes, but it's about uh, these coho salmon who were having a problem with dying a lot. Um, <laughs> it's a, a pretty thing, big problem. <laughs> yeah. A thing about salmon is that they <laughs> die. They are mortal beings. <laughs> but also they have to swim up. They have to swim upstream to their like spawning grounds, right? To lay salmon eggs. Uh-huh. And then when those are hatched, they go out down the streams. They do other stuff. And then they have to go back up to lay eggs. The coho salmon, their breeding grounds are kind of in the Puget Sound area, mm-hmm. which means they have to st- uh, they have to swim up these like urban creeks in the Seattle area to get mm. to them. And there's something foul in the urban creeks that, yeah, has been killing the salmon in a really a way that all of the articles I read were like like both of them started with a description of the salmon death. It's not a fun sounding one. I mean, <laughs> lots of dead fish well, all in it's one not area. Like the salmon like lay down peacefully. <laughs> oh, like they they swim in circles and they like list to Ooh. the side and they like gasp at the surface when oh, no. they die. And it's apparently really unpleasant to watch. And these coho salmon. I'm sure it's also very unpleasant to experience if you're a salmon. <laughs> um, but they kind of, there was a big like con- conservation effort like 20 years ago to try to get them like back into the area. Mm-hmm. And so it's like bad news that like it would like that worked, the mm-hmm. conservation effort did. And so like they were coming back to the Puget Sound to like make more salmon every year um but yeah it's all gone awry all for naught <laughs> yes because yeah they were dying um and they do continue to die <laughs> uh, but there's this group uh led by jennifer mcintyre so jennifer mcintyre is at washington state and some of these scientists are at the university of washington um in tacoma and in seattle so jennifer mcintyre was really curious about why this happened and kind of the only clue that they had was that this like horrible dying behavior was mostly observed after rainfall okay. which happens a lot up there mm. so it's not like <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I know about Seattle <laughs> yeah well I that didn't occur to me until right now it was like okay cool so at least they have a lot of time like as long as it's not raining they're fine but it's like raining a lot um Woof. Uh, but so they uh, partnered with a fishery run by the Suquamish tribe. I should also just mention really fast uh, my sources. So this paper, a paper about this was published um, in Science on December 3rd by Zinyu Chan et al. And then I read uh, the article that Sarah McQuaid tweeted was by Linda V. Mapes, which every time I tried to write it out, I said Linda M. Vapes. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but the point is, that's at the Seattle Ta- Seattle Times. Yes. Um, but I'm mostly going off of a really, really compelling article by Katrina Einhorn at the New York Times. Anyway, sorry. So that aside, this group of researchers partnered with um, a fishery run by the Suquamish tribe. Um like near Seattle. And basically they were taking these coho salmon and treating them with like artificial runoff that they'd made. So they were like combining, like treating the salmon with chemicals that they knew were in runoff, like, like 
things from motor oils and heavy metals and stuff. Mm -hmm. But the fish were not affected (laughs) um, by this like lab runoff, Uh Um, even though it sounds really bad. Yeah. Like they mentioned in this article that they like (laughs) were shocked by how much like the salmon, like the salmon were unaffected even when they put a lot of this stuff in there. (laughs) But... When they went out, so apparently this fishery was next to an elevated road with, like, a little drain spout. Mm-hmm. And they just went out after it rained and got some water from the drain spout and put it on the fish, and they did die. Oh, no. Um, so it's, like, mass spec time. It is exactly <laughs> mass spec time. Um, so they took their runoff water, and they did mass spec on it. Mass spec is a technique where you kind of – you take, like, a mix of chemicals and you – bust them up somehow into really small fragments and then you analyze those fragments uh based on how much they weigh and then you can like identify them using that uh by comparing them to like standards so what they did was they did mass spec on this runoff that had killed the fish and compared it to mass spec on water from the urban creeks that were killing the fish and looked for basically chemicals that were present in both. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ended up with a list of 2,000 candidate oh, chemicals. Okay. <laughs> and so, is that why this is intriguing and not solved? <laughs> it is actually solved. Oh, okay. I mean, Yeah. Yes. I just wanted to build up the intrigue first. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> so... They kind of thought, like, they were suspicious of tire particles from the like beginning. Rubber? Yeah, like, like rubber and chemicals that are used to treat tires to make them, like, tough and I don't know. Uh, I don't exactly know how tire manufacturing works. <laughs> I know there are preservatives to keep the rubber good. Uh-huh. I don't know. Um, <laughs> there's a reason that's the only one that I know. <laughs> but, um, just hint, I guess. Um, but so they did this thing where they like shredded up tires and boiled water uh-huh. on them and then put it on the fish and the fish died. Oh no. Um, These poor fish. Yes. And Jennifer McIntyre mentions this where she's like, oh my gosh, it's like horrible to watch these fish die. Oh. But it's also like really important to know why it's yeah, happening. Yeah. And they died in the same way, the like weird listing. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they were able to kind of narrow it down to like 200 compounds by basically ordering so they have this mass spec list basically Mm -hmm. that says here are all the chemicals like the identifiable chemicals that are shareable between or that are present in both the runoff and the deadly creeks Um, and so they ordered any of those compounds that were known to be toxic to fish and started kind of treating the fish with them and Mm -hmm. seeing what happened they whittled it down to 200 candidates, which is better than 2,000 mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. But it's still a lot. And they got kind of stuck at that point. Um, How did the tire boiling come into that play? Oh, the tire boiling just kind of confirms that it is something tire related. Oh, I, I know. Sorry. But like, what about the chemicals from there? How or does just that, that overlap those were... with the 2,000? Well, I don't know the number, like the number of those that were from tires. But like there was a, like this is all kind of like a big... Venn diagram, I Uh guess. So a lot of the stuff that's present in both of those samples they did mass spec on, but not present in the, like, fake runoff that they made that didn't kill the fish is Uh tire stuff. And then, clearly, because they boiled the tires and it killed the fish, like, it is something tire-related, but they still have about 200 compounds. Okay. Um, Got it. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, 
but they ordered a bunch of like purified compounds from that list that were known to be toxic to fish um and none of them they like couldn't figure out which ones were responsible uh-huh and then so the lead author here, Jin Yu Jin, started looking for compounds that could be altered by the environment. Like maybe the way they were when you ordered them. Like if you had a list of compounds and you ordered one of them, it wouldn't be poisonous to fish. But if it got like oxidized from being mm. outside or something or somehow altered, it might be poisonous to fish. So he okay. started looking at the carbon nitrogen skeletons of these compounds because usually when things get modified by their environments, like the oxygens and hydrogens get altered, but the like carbon nitrogen backbone structure stays the same. Okay. Um, and he found, so there was a chemical called 6-PPD, an antioxidant that's used uh, as like a preservative in tires. And he found a chemical that's known to be toxic to fish called 6-PPD quinone um, that they were like, oh, cool, let's order this then. (laughs) Um, And it did cause the fish to die. So this is the culprit, basically. Um, It's necessary and sufficient for fish death. Uh, for this co- lit up of coho salmon um, in so these circumstances. Not, it was not known to be toxic to fish? It was known to so be toxic to fish. So 6 quinone was known to be toxic to fish, but it's not what's in the tires. Okay. So they ordered the other one, and it was also toxic to fish? No. So 6-PPD is not toxic to fish. Is what? So the one that okay. they had on their lists as a candidate uh-huh. wasn't toxic to fish. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. So they ordered 6-PPD quinone, quinone, which is toxic to fish, and they're hypothesizing that it's in the tire runoff or it's in the tire runoff but becomes changed in the environment and that then becomes... It's the result of the change. The the original one. 6-PPD is uh, the original compound and after it comes off the tires, it becomes... Okay. Yeah. But isn't... But after... But the tires that are boiled and fed to fish Uh like that... Not fed... Or dripped yeah. on fish. Uh-huh. That is also toxic. Yes, but of that's because feet? that's showing up in there too. It's just not like a like I think the thing is when you do mass spec, basically you're blasting everything into really small. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't have necessarily shown up with the mass spec data. Yeah, so you would know there was six PPD in there, but you uh-huh. wouldn't know how it had been altered necessarily. Got it. Um, okay. Got it. Got yeah, it, got especially it. if you weren't looking for that specifically, you know, mm-hmm. like kind of the thing about mass spec is that you do sort of have to like have an idea of what you're looking uh-huh. for. Right. Um. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was trying to figure out why it wasn't in their candidate mm-hmm. list if they were using like natural runoff. Yeah. But, okay. Cool. Um, cool. So yes. Um. So now they're talking to tire production industries and. I guess it's just one industry, the tire <laughs> production industry, um, and seeing if maybe they could work on finding an alternative uh-huh. <laughs> uh, to this fish-killing compound. Um, but yeah, so they figured it out, which is really good. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty and much the story. it could have a significant impact on fish health. Yes. Which is great. It could. But yes, yeah. So hopefully they can kind of fix that. <laughs> yeah, hopefully there's another product, another chemical that works just as well. Yeah, surely. Like surely. It, uh-huh. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, yeah, that's that one. Cool. I really liked the New York Times article. I feel bad because I feel like I borrowed their narrative structure very heavily, which normally I try to change it up. <laughs> but, you know, it's good. It was a good one. Yeah. yeah. Good story. Do you have a story to leave me gasping for, I don't know. <laughs> More? <laughs> Do you have a story to submerge? <laughs> Do you have a story we can swim upstream in? No. That sounds like a come on. I have a swimmingly good story. Oh, perfect. That'll work. <laughs> I'll take that. Um, I have a story that I just, I just love, like, I just would love to meet these people because they seem great. Um, this is a story about some very dedicated ecologists who are working on their vacation time. Mm-hmm. So um, in 2017... <laughs> Two scientists, Ruth Kozian and Timo Vanderniet, went to a citizen science workshop in South Africa, which is held in the Drakensberg Mountains. And they were wandering around these mountains. <laughs> this sounds so fun. This sounds like a D&D situation. Yes, yeah. they sound really cool. So they were wandering around these mountains and they found a really cool flower. It's called a Guthrea capensis and it's called the hidden flower if you're not using the latin oh my gosh that sounds like a full-on euphemism (laughs) i mean yeah (laughs) what does it look like uh it doesn't look like a vagina okay it doesn't look like labia (laughs) it just looks like a flower it looks like it's green it's a green flower and it's very close to the ground and it has a (laughs) lot of nectar in it like, nice. All of this is sounding like baby to me. <laughs> Even the green. Yeah, close to the ground. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. Um, sorry. Green close to the ground. Full of nectar. It's very unusual. I mean, yeah, the fulling of nectar. <laughs> but it's so full of nectar that an insect could drown in it, which is <laughs> terrifying. <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> um... Oh. Uh-huh. And the nectar tastes so bad. It tastes like apparently bit burnt bitter plastic. And I don't know. I guess it was the ecologist who tasted it, but I would not do that if I was an ecologist. <laughs> oh no, yeah. Anyway. I would hire a biochemist to taste it for me. <laughs> you? Just, no, I actually don't want to taste it either. I was trying to I didn't want to punch in any direction really except for at myself. And I was trying to think of somebody who would make taste the nectar. Um, <laughs> just a friend yeah you pay anyone high enough you know, yeah. they'll do it eventually <laughs> um so it doesn't have it or it didn't have a known pollinator which is why these ecologists were interested in it um and the fact that it's like low to the ground and like an insect could drown in it well that's what i was that, going to say it sounds hard it sounds yeah. hostile to pollinators <laughs> so hostile to insect pollinators <gasps> So there are rare cases of small rodents pollinating um, <laughs> pollinating flowers, what? especially when they're in that like situation. Like a flower that is low to the ground and has more nectar in it is probably more likely to be pollinated by a mammal. Does it come out in their poop? Um, so I, th- I think the idea is that they stick their little snouts in there and then the pollen gets on their snouts and then they carry it to another flower. Okay, so it has to be creatures that don't groom themselves very well or very often. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> Coming for you rats and mice and whatnot. Rodents. <laughs> Other rodentia. 
<laughs> I feel like they do. I guess, I mean, you would only have to transfer it from one flower to the other. So if you can get them to like, you know, just like take it next door without grooming themselves first, <laughs> it might work out. Okay. Um, so they, they thought it, so they're like, okay, we can, we can figure out what's pollinating this. We mm-hmm. just have to set up a camera at night. Um, except apparently this was really difficult because they're like on a very steep mountain range and it's really rocky. So it's hard to set up a camera, mm-hmm. but, um, they managed to, they managed to set up these cameras and film flowers at night and didn't see anything like nothing. They did five days of the whole night. The camera's on. Mm-hmm. They saw nothing. Invisible rodents. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> little rats like, little invisibility like, cloaks. Yeah, like you're really burying the lead here. <laughs> it's like it's a really interesting pollinator. Also, we've discovered invisibility. <laughs> In nature. Sadly not an invisible. Okay. <laughs> um so at the end of five days of like full like all night video recording they decided like they didn't have very much time to do this because oh i forgot to mention that they had roped in another couple by this point oh, nice. so i was going to ask if they were in love they are in love yeah sorry okay, so this is a husband and wife team yeah but then they managed to rope in another couple and bring them on a work vacation where uh, this couple <laughs> is um lynn steenhausen and stephen johnson um and um, Lynn Steenhausen is quoted as saying this was an incredibly strenuous vacation because she because all of the rest are trail runners. Mm-hmm. So she was like, hey, this is so much strenuous activity. Oh, no. <laughs> They're all just running up the mountain. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> I think it's just like a lot of like up and down, you know. Yeah. Even if you aren't running it, it's probably pretty difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're spending like all day up there. Okay. So these two couples were wandering around the mountains. They'd been filming for five days. They were so frustrated. So they decided to set it up for the daytime too, just to like see if they could get anything. And the next day when they downloaded their data, they found that it wasn't a mammal that was pollinating these flowers. It was a <gasps> That's so exciting. <laughs> it's a lizard called I'm sorry for whispering lizard. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lizard called the Drakensberg Crag Lizard. Um they're um Crag Lizard? Crag, yeah. Okay. What did you hear? Crab. <laughs> no, it's not another crab story. It's just a crag. Because they live on crags. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um and they stick their little snouts in these nectar-filled um, flowers. And then the pollen, because the nectar is so sticky, the pollen gets stuck to the nectar on their snouts. I would like to point out that lizards don't groom themselves. Yes, yeah. so you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> Exciting. The clues were all there. <laughs> you could have solved this mystery. <laughs> I know, just see, like, what's like a rodent? But doesn't but without groom. any fur. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, their scaly skin isn't like a natural receptacle of pollen, right? But uh-huh. because the nectar is so sticky, the pollen sticks to the nice. nectar on their skin and then they can carry it around to flowers. It's very cute. Yeah. What color are they? What? What color are they? I'm just wondering because the flowers are green. Okay, nice. Yeah, they're green. That's it. I mean, that's one of the things is that um, because the flowers are green, they're not. That was another one of the clues that it wasn't an insect Mm -hmm. because usually flowers that have to attract an insect are really bright, Mm -hmm. brightly colored. So the fact that they were green suggests that it could be something that wasn't an insect. And now 
um, because this is the second known instance of a lizard pollinating a flower, so it's really, really rare. It's also the first known incident of a lizard pollinating a flower on the African continent. Mm. Um, now, because we have two data points, we can try and figure out what makes these flowers similar. What is attracting the lizards? Like how how do these two fit together in a niche, basically? Nice. What attracts the lizards? What are um, – Cool. Yeah. What I are like? like what's the appropriate shape for a lizard snout? I guess. Ooh, interesting. <laughs> are these teeny little lizards? No, they're they're like. Here, let me try and find a picture next to a flower. They're. I guess they're. Yeah, they're pretty small actually. Oh, they're cute. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> they're adorable. Oh my gosh, I like this story. I was really averse to the concept of a work vacation when we started this podcast and I learned what a work vacation was. <laughs> but this sounds really fun, I guess. Um, so there's a little bit more science to do oh, cool. to prove that they were the pollinators. The first thing they did, uh, this is so cute, they painted a little bit of dye into the flowers that were being like a powdery dye into mm-hmm. the flowers. And they witnessed the lizards being painted by this dye and moving the dye to new flowers okay. so they could like track oh the movement of the of the of the of the lizard from one pollens uh, one pollen source to a pollen destination mm-hmm. and specifically the female parts of the destination flower <laughs> um <laughs> i like okay because this is being done on a work vacation and not in a like long-term lab study, did they just have this dye with them? Were they just like, well, we might have to dye a flower? Oh, I'm very sorry to disillusion you, but unfortunately they did this, they did turn this into a longer term study. Oh, I didn't even think they were like, well, I've got like a blue pin in my pocket. <laughs> if we want to just dab that on the flower. Like, I, I think went- after the initial two week vacation, vacation in mm-hmm. quotes, they did eventually bring it into a lab oh setting. Oh my god! Or like they turned it into a lab study. I'm so disappointed. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I understand. The brunt of the discovery was made on their work vacation. Nice. But then they had to do some further experiments. Mm-hmm. The other experiment they did, which was slightly more long-term, was that they blocked access of some flowers. So they basically like put up a cage around mm-hmm. some of the flowers and found that 95% fewer there were 95% fewer fruits on flowers that could not be pollinated by the lizards. Mm. So that implicates the lizards as the primary pollinators of these plants. But there might be another one, a 5% one. Maybe. But that, like, 95% is pretty darn good. Yeah, so. that's true. And it's um, – this is, yeah, as I already mentioned, one of two cases where the primary pollinators of a plant are – is a lizard – And there are only five or something around that, five known cases of plants where the – where lizards are an important pollinator. Mm. So lizards don't do that much pollination. So this is a very cool discovery by Cozian et al. Nice. And I wanted to quickly mention that I, I learned about this from a Guardian article by Nick Dahl. And the paper is cozy in it all in ecology. And it's called Saurian Surprise. Lizards pollinate South Africa's enigmatic hidden flower. What does Saurian mean? I don't know. Niche joke. 
<laughs> Niche joke ecologist. That's why we hate you. I <laughs> doubt. <laughs> uh, oh, <laughs> it means over like a lizard. <laughs> they just needed something no. that was uh surprisy. Um no, what's the alliterative? Yeah, alliterative. Yeah. That's what I meant by surprisy too. I just did not convey it well. Um I'm gonna start using that. I'm gonna be like, don't give me that sorry and luck. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's an example. <laughs> nice. Well, I liked that story and surprise. I'm glad. Do you have a different surprise or well, I have a known fact that I want to tell you about. <laughs> Tell me about your known fact. <laughs> it's not supposed to be a surprise. And in fact, this is something that's been known for a while, but people on the internet are excited about it now because of the way the internet works. Um, man, this could be a whole science adjacent story. It's like when and how science articles right. get read. And on what, like, pa- like, period. Yeah. You know? Yes. So, do you know about carcinization? Mm-mm. It is the process of turning into a crab. Oh, yes. I kind of know about it because Julie, friend of the yeah. pod, loves this fact. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah. We you- talked about crabs so much in game, in our RPG mm-hmm. lately. Because everything becomes crabs. Yes. <laughs> so that's not exactly true. The fact is that five things have become crabs independently. <laughs> In the course of evolution, which is a lot of times to just like come up with a crab mm-hmm. in terms of especially because they're kind of gross. No yeah, offense to crabs. Kind of gross. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I know people aren't fans. That's it. <laughs> um, also, until I had learned this word, carcinization, I didn't realize that cancer, the disease, like was actually from the same root word as cancer. The crab? Like, I thought it was just a coincidence that they had the same word. Oh. <laughs> but it turns out it full on, like, cancer the disease full on means crab because of the way that tumors, like, scutter, spread scutter. out. Yeah. <laughs> like little crab legs, which is horrible. Um, but anyway, so yes, they're from the same root word. Um, <laughs> but, yes, so five times in evolution, we've gotten a full on independent new crab. So normally... Creatures that look similar have evolved from, like, oh, like, normally, I'm trying to think of a a good example, like, mammals, right? We have some sort of common ancestor who, like, decided to be a mammal, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we haven't all independently decided to develop fur or whatever. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. The thing is that that's not the case with these crabs. Like, just five independent, separate times evolution has come up with a crab as the solution to problems posed in their uh-huh. environment, which is <laughs> wild. That's weird. Um, and so there are five different... These crabs are king crabs, porcelain crabs, hairy stone crabs, coconut crabs, and true crabs, which is a whole set of crabs. Mm. So that's it. Um, Carcinization was first noted by Lancelot Alexander Borodale, who was an English zoologist in 1916, who said it's, quote, one of the many attempts of nature to evolve a crab. So I like the idea that maybe, like, crabs are peak evolution. Like, lots of times people are like, oh, you know, like, the origin of these species. Like, it's us. We're the species. And I like the idea of being, like, Nature's just trying to come up with new crabs, you know? <laughs> um, 
That's it. There was a paper that came out in 2017 by Keller et al. that models the inner organs of crabs to identify like structural similarities between, well, to discover what like structure, like structural dependencies basically. So like what is happening with crabs organs that allow them to be crab-like on their outside? Oh, okay. Like the name for the term for a crab body is a habitus. Um, so, like, what kind of has to happen with the soft parts of the crab in order for it to make sense for it to have a shell? Uh-huh. And they found a lot of similarities between the different independent crabs. Just basically they all kind of start to shape their organs in the same way and develop shells in similar shapes. And uh-huh. it's really weird. Um, the reason it's hypothesized that carcinization happens are all, like, physical pressures, like temperature and like pressure mm-hmm. and just like things that happen in shallow water basically and so that's why that's why we get so many crabs the reason i started looking at this is because the uh you know the big one the monterey bay aquarium uh-huh. uh posted a tweet you know that meme <laughs> that's like <laughs> People at a party. Oh, yeah. And there's one guy in the the corner corner who's like, they don't know I'm famous on Twitter. They don't know whatever. Um, But this one had a crab in the corner. And it was wearing a hat and holding a beer. And it says, they don't know I used to look like them. And so I was like, what is this about? Because I looked at the comments and they were like, love that you posted this. Anyway, so I just did a lot of sleuthing until I found out that it was about carcinization. And it turns out it's maybe not a real full story, but there you have it. Crabs. Crabs. They keep coming. Yeah. (laughs) Someday we'll all be crabs. God, I hope I would like to say that all of the crabs, the different crabs, have arisen from crustaceans. There weren't crabs. Okay. So it's from, like, very different clades. Yes. It's not like... It's not like mammals are becoming crabs mm-hmm. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So we're not in danger of like spontaneously becoming crabs. Not unless we start hanging out in the water <laughs> and scuttling. <laughs> you know? I do that every day. Are you telling me I'm going to become a crab? Not in your lifetime. <laughs> like, watch out for your offspring, you know? Um Yes, so there's that. I read an article by Benjamin Bullard in Sci-Fi Wire. (gasps) And I learned that people are obsessed with crabs because crabs are funnier. But worms (laughs) have evolved nine independent times from nine different phyla. What? That's it. But worms are not funny. No. Sorry. (laughs) So that's why we're focusing on crabs. I don't think there's a name for, like, worminization, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh, not that I know of. All that would happen for it to be a worm thing is like someone would ha- just have to like make up a word for wormanization Whoa. and then it would be. Become... I feel like we just did. Yeah. And then, okay, here's the thing about that is we've just created a perfect opportunity for memes and the memes are all based on Britney Spears' womanizer. <laughs> With wormanizer. <laughs> so consider that science Twitter. We're going to change the game. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) Well, nice. Thank you.
<laughs> it can be cut if need be, but I hope everyone learned something interesting about crabs. I learned something interesting about crabs. Cool. I'm glad. That's going to be my happy thing. <laughs> <laughs> like wildly nothing good had happened until literally two minutes ago. <laughs> no, no. I have a... I have a Okay. Well, do you want to talk about it? Yes. My happy thing is that we started Christmas early and we got we went and got a tree on November 29th, which is crazy. Who does that? Apparently we do. Um, Also, Dolly Parton had her tree up. Okay, fine. Us and Dolly Parton. Anyway. And my family. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) we set up our tree. It's beautiful. It is fake. It's very beautiful. But it's beautiful. Cats um, love to chew it. Cats love to chew it. All our ornaments are on it. It lights up. We can do that right now. We have a butter ornament. We have a croissant ornament. We have a Bigfoot ornament. We have a Wookiee ornament. We have so many good ornaments. It's just it's just great. My mom said recently that 2020 has kind of sucked and it deserves to have more Christmas in it. And I hereby stand by that statement. And that is why my happy thing is that we set up our Christmas tree and it's beautiful. Nice. Nice, nice. Sorry, did I steal? No, yours? you didn't. Oh, good. <laughs> so Allison is moving on Friday. I'm our good friend and, and friend I'm so of, happy about it. Friend of the pod, <laughs> and I'm happy about it. <laughs> Ugh, but why? What? Why am I happy about it? I'm happy for you. Is what they mean. <laughs> I'm trying not to rain on your parade. Thank you. I'm very sad that you're leaving. Me too. And Kelsey Anson, friend of the pod, is also leaving. And we've all, we got, we got fake tattoos together <laughs> and watched a rom-com and drink champagne. And it was just really beautiful. <laughs> I'm having a, like, genuinely rough time. Or, like, not in a, not in a, like, that's the problem is that it's hard to be, like, like, I don't want to be, like, I'm sad. But I am really sad. But I'm also really happy that I love you both so much. But also, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is a bad thing that made me happy this week. The happy no. thing is that I really got to savor some time with, like, just two of my very, very best friends. And it was <laughs> That's it. very nice. Yeah. And the fake tattoo has lasted longer than I thought. Um, it's lasted <laughs> way shorter than I thought. Because it said it would be there for, like, 7 to 12 days. We take too many baths. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but Kelsey's is still there. <laughs> Kelsey did say hers was still there. <laughs> but we're back. Can I not take a bath? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one can stop me. <laughs> so <laughs> that is a good happy thing. I mean, it's a sad happy thing too, but it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And it is happy because, like, you're both doing really cool things. And also, I got to live in the same place as you for so long. <laughs> and you'll get to live in the same place as me again. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't want to jinx myself. <sighs> anyway, that's that. <gasps> yes. And my paper was accepted last Yay! time. Yay! I think I already did that last time. <laughs> oh, okay. Did I? I can't remember. I think I did. But just I mean, with minor revisions. <laughs> Double happy. Just mentioning it again. <laughs> That's a real thing. That's important. The other thing is important, too. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't mean in contrast. I just meant, like, in contrast to my past with science. Oh, I see, I see. Yes, yes. I Like, I wasn't contrasting it to that. I just mean, like, that's a real solid thing. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing did not need a disclaimer that said it was a real thing that was important, you know? So, there we go. Nice. Well, that's 
it for us. Forever. <laughs> but check us out on Science Adjacent, which is going to be so fun. Uh, say hi to Galen from Allison and Grayson. Keep listening to this. I think it's going to be good. <gasps> also, Galen's name is sort of like an amalgamation of our names. Yeah. So it's like we're both all there. Yeah, we just like like smushed into one person and it's Galen. But Galen <laughs> is very different, to be clear. <laughs> anyway, enjoy. Bye. Bye. <laughs> That's it for us this week. Thanks to everybody who has rated or reviewed us on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> if you have a free minute, please consider rating us or writing us a review. It might help us get sponsored in the future, and it makes us feel special. Join us in two weeks for another science chat, but until then, remember, you're significant. Make sure your science is too. This podcast was written and produced by me, Allison Gilchrist, and my co-host, Grayson Wheeler. Our theme music is If I Had a Chicken by Kevin McLeod. Go to sciencebuffs.org to read the Science Buffs blog or find out more about the podcast at buffstalkscience.com. You can also follow us at Science Buffs on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can follow Buffs Talk Sci on Twitter for podcast-specific news. Bye. Bye. <laughs>